Welcome to Jerusalem Studio Podcast. Join us to discuss the latest updates from Israel and the region. Shalom and welcome to Jerusalem Studio. Officially, there are only five great powers in the post-World War II world. The five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council were also declared nuclear weapon states. But in reality, there are other powers with a legitimate claim or aspirations to greatness, at least by some measures, such as Germany, Japan, and India. There are no longer blocks headed by two superpowers. Rather, there is a mix of confrontation, cooperation, and mostly competition, as evident by the bitterness shown by France following the American-British nuclear propulsion deal for Australian submarines. So what is this state of play in great power competition? To analyze this topic, we're joined by Colonel Retired, Dr. Eran Lerman, who is the co-host of TV7's Middle East Review, uh, the Vice President of the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security, as well as the Editor-in-Chief of the Jerusalem Strategic Tribune. Thank you for joining us. Also uh, sit, uh, seated next to, uh, <coughs> excuse me, Dr. Lerman is Ambassador Daniel Elon, who is also a co-host of TV7's Middle East Review, Israel's former ambassador to the United States and Deputy Foreign Minister, as well as a lecturer at NYU. Thank you for joining us as well. And with us, uh, of course, is also our TV7 analyst and host of TV7's Watchmen Talk, Mr. Amir Owen. And with that, we will dive into today's long variety of, of uh, discussions surrounding the, the great power competition. Mr. Owen, uh, of course, currently standing is the, the superpower uh, of the 21st century, if you uh, uh, will, of course, also defined as the, the Rome of the 21st century, the United States of America. To what degree is it still a center, uh, the central player of uh, this uh, great power competition, and uh, what are the the key implications and alliances it forged throughout our region here in the Middle East, and of course with direct or indirect implications to the state of Israel? Well, you call it Rome. Uh, They prefer to see themselves as a Jerusalem, as a city on the hill. At least uh, they started out uh, with uh, such uh, lofty ambitions. But you know, your... um, Introductory remarks uh, bring to mind uh, the old slogan of um, one of the American uh, news radio stations. You give us 22 minutes, we'll give you the world. WNEW in New York and other uh, stations. So fortunately, you are giving us almost double that time. And um, we do have the freedom to delve uh, more deeply into that. So President Biden, uh, having come into office uh, on the heels of the Trump administration, is trying to both maintain um, some continuity in U.S. foreign policy uh, going back to uh, the Obama administration uh, and perhaps even earlier regarding uh, the uh, shift from Europe and the Middle East towards China and uh, what is now uh, being called the Indo-Pacific Ocean. It is not the Far East. It is no longer just the Pacific. It's the Indo-Pacific area because of the significance of India as a regional power, perhaps even more than than, uh, regional. And if you have um, a change priority, 
it means that uh, another priority must go uh, down uh, to a lower rung on the ladder. So the entire Middle East uh, and the Eastern Mediterranean region must uh, weigh the consequences of um, an American drawdown and withdrawal from the region and the uh, shift or the pivot um, way east. Um, does it mean that Israel has a choice in uh, looking towards another um, power center in the world? Probably not. Uh, it can have partnerships, it can have relations, but uh, when push comes to shove, as when the Americans uh, oppose uh, the Chinese investments in Israel, Israel must choose Washington over Beijing and any other capital. Ambassador Ayalon, your take on this? Well, I would say that uh, if we look at the last maybe 70, 75 years since World War II, there were three epicenters. Started with Europe, where the Cold War started. So this was where things were happening. This was really the archi archi uh, archimedic uh, pole of the East against West, US and the NATO alliance against the Warsaw Pact. Then it moved over to the Middle East after the uh, reestablishment of the State of Israel and all the um, you know, Arab-Israeli uh, conflict. Also, you have Russia on the other, you know, the, the Eastern Front on the one side, and the US, and with Europe, of course, uh, wavering, as maybe as usual. And now it's all shifted to the Pacific. And uh, the, I think the, the crunch and the, the, the word or the, the, the real factor here is China. I remember, Jonathan, in 2004, I was summoned to the uh, White House, to the Situation Room, with the uh, military attaché of the embassy, with a total presentation only on China. And they were showing us a lot of graphs, how the Chinese, you know, armament is enormous, how they are now thinking of um, uh, aircrafts and, and many, many other things that uh, only a superpower that wants to control the waterways uh, achieves, and they saw it as a danger. Since then, about 17 years elapsed, and only now we see how this th uh, threat or the perceived threat by the United States is becoming into a concrete policy. No more haphazard, you know, uh, economic uh, uh, measures and others, diplomatic. Now we see how the United States, just like in 1945, or 46 after the World War II, is arranging a pact surrounding China. And if you look at the map, you have China surrounded by Australia, India, United States, Japan, Korea, Canada, you can add also to that. And I believe we are going to see a new Cold War now when China on the one hand and the European and the Western countries on the other. Indeed. Dr. Lerman? Well, certainly China is at the very center of every American discussion uh, about the future of the world order today because the numbers are staggering. The, the rise of the Chinese economy in the 40 years since Deng Xiaoping opened it up it has been uh, stead uh, steady in, in terms that the West cannot compete with. Basically, I used to say that the reason Trump was elected president is that if you take any object 
turn it over to the other side and look at the bottom. It says made in China. So the manufacturing base of America, it's pride and joy and, uh, and the uh, voter base of the Democratic Party uh, evaporated because of Chinese competition. Not that any of this can be retrieved, but this is the reality of, of the world today. However, there's something very interesting in the uh, Biden administration um, interim national security strategy document. And that is that they, uh, in order to contain China, they look not only to geopolitics, to Rome, as Amir said, but also to the Jerusalem aspect, the moral and ide ideational um, aspects of being America being what it is. And they speak about the uh, committee or community of the democracies. And in this respect, um, this is one of the elements of the Quad, um, the US, Japan, Australia, and India, this new concept which is gaining traction and has certainly been dramatically demonstrated with this uh, AUK-US AUKUS uh, alliance that is now emerging. Um, it is that they're all democracies. Well, you can say that Modi is a certain kind of Democrat and that Japanese democracy has its faults. And uh, of course, you'll have, you'll have some carpings in America itself that the democratic process is not what it used to be. But this is part of, of the um, structure of the new alliance. It goes back to the foundation of NATO on the same principles. And I think that also gives Israel, at the end of the day, a point of, of leverage, a point of, uh, of influence uh, that needs to be retained and developed. With that being said, of course, the reality on the ground, uh, in light of this great power competition, uh, we see the emergence of distractions. If uh, the Gaza Strip is Israel's distraction with uh, the main focus needing to be uh, the dangers emanating from the Islamic Republic of Iran, regional issues that are more pressing for Israel may be uh, viewed or are viewed by the United States as mere distractions from the greater picture, which is uh, the uh, uh, China and uh, its various allies, uh, including Russia and, and other uh, of like-minded nations. How do you see this actually translated? You spoke earlier about the posture review, the fact that uh, the United States, with the entry of uh, the Biden administration, immediately engaged in a posture review of its resources, of its military, trying to see how it can compete more efficiently against the Chinese. Well, it's a matter of um, primary versus secondary and whether there is a contradiction here. Um, Danny Ayalon earlier mentioned uh, the uh, Cold War or Cold War 2.0, um, which the United States uh, may be uh, getting into uh, with China. And going back to the uh, original Cold War, um, not only NATO, but uh, the entire what was called Pactomania uh, of Secretary of State uh, Dallas uh, with CETO uh, and CENTO um, had to do with regional pacts, regional alliances, uh, either containing Russia, now uh, put China instead of uh, the Soviet Union, 
uh, or at least, uh, or even trying to roll to roll back. And the Arab-Israeli conflict was originally viewed through the prism of these alliances. There was supposed to be a Middle East command, mm -hmm. uh, and the American uh, wish to arm Egypt and uh, Iraq and other countries had to do uh, with blocking the Soviet push southward. Israel claimed at the time that uh, it is going to be inferior vis-a-vis -vis these Arab countries and that uh, it is better suited to block the Soviets if they come over. And, and then, of course, the Soviet Union leapfrogged over the West and started investing in Egypt and Syria and, and other places. So the and Middle Amir, East... I think also Nasser preferred the Soviets over Kennedy and the Americans. Nasser also made a mistake but, for the, for well, Egypt's sake. K Kennedy tried to to woo to court uh, uh, Nasser, but uh, but nevertheless, uh, Israel must um, consider and uh, and be tolerant of American wishes to see the big picture first, and for the Americans, they have to somehow traverse the short term in order to get to the longer term. Short term, they believe that Russia is the bigger danger uh, in various uh, friction points. The Ukraine, Crimea, or Black Sea, Syria, and other places. Cyber. Cy well, cyber or the gray zone is part of the method, the means, but we're talking about the ends. Right. Um, and, and Israel uh, cannot always bring forward its own pet project, in this case, the Persian pet project, mm -hmm. um, to divert attention uh, from, from the real task uh, at hand. Hopefully, there will be uh, more of an alignment between Jerusalem and Washington. Well, I think Israel has some benefit strategically out of it because, first of all, uh, I think it, the, the strategic outline and picture has become very clear. And like Amir said, certainly Israel will have to choose very, very, um, I would say, straightforwardly, China or the United States. Not there is a, I mean, it's, it's a no-brainer for sure, but now it becomes much more urgent. And uh, in, in that respect, I think that there is kind of give and take, whereby um, the more Israel disassociates its, itself from China, and China does seek here a lot of technology, and uh, Israel benefits a lot, like a $10 billion uh, trade with China. It's quite significant for us, but still, it dwarfs in comparison to the challenges that we have vis-a-vis -vis Iran, of course, um, radical Islam. And here, I think that with this associating uh, Israel itself from China, we can get more attention and more allocation of resources of the United States towards Iran. But it also brings us into the crosshairs of China Absolutely. within this uh, competition. Well, interestingly enough, uh, one of the uh, scholars at uh, Jerusalem Institute for Strategic Security, Tuvia Gehring, a uh, China hand, noticed that for the first time, you can see in Chinese publications what the, the traditional anti-Semitic tropes about the Jews controlling America, about, uh, about uh, Jewish characteristics. Very nasty indication that the Chinese are not going to uh, 
accept uh, without response a, uh, this kind of Israeli decision. I'm not quite sure that Israel should uh, prematurely uh, make this choice. After all, the Americans don't make it. The United States trades with China in the hundreds of billions, and, and this is uh, what makes this Cold War different from the previous one. Uh, I hope I don't sound too crude, but there's an old expression which refers to the dentist proposition. And the guy was about to be treated by the dentist when he took firm hold of the dentist in a sensitive area and said sweetly, let's not hurt each other. So um, the American and Chinese economies are in the dentist position. They will hurt each other immensely if they come into all-out conflict. So it is not the Cold, the Cold War template when we lived on different planets economically and, and, and ideologically. China today is a capitalist country with a communist government, and it is totally dependent on its export capacity. So it cannot close the world on itself like the hermit colony to the northeast in North Korea. Um, and so this, and Israel shouldn't, I think, contribute to, to that kind of, of thinking. At the same time, I would totally agree, if we have to make a choice, uh, it's a no-brainer. Uh, the, the other wing of the Jewish people, and the new Pew numbers are very uh, optimistic for a change, about 7 million Jews live in the United States of America. So we are about co-equal. And uh, one more point. Um, why, not, why did Kennedy, uh, at the end of the day, uh, and, uh, and Johnson afterwards, they could not deliver to NASA the one thing he really wanted, which would have been hegemony in the Arabian Peninsula, because they wouldn't sacrifice America's ally. Now, I think the Biden administration, for all their distaste for the methods of MBS or CC, do realize where their real alliances lie and what gives them leverage. China is totally energy dependent. So even if you pivot to the East, you need a hinge for the pivot. And the Middle East will remain the hinge of the pivot. And Iran is no substitute for Israel, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt. And you see this with the military exercises now. Bright Star, as big as ever, uh, the fifth fleet exercising with the Israeli Navy in the Red Sea, never before. A patrol, not only an exercise. No, no. Yes, an operational, operational patrol. patrol. Mm -hmm. yeah. these, are, these are very interesting indications of where things are really going with Israel now in CENTCOM, firmly and effectively, and, uh, and with Lloyd Austin, the former commander of, of, of CENTCOM, in a key position. Indeed, not to forget, of course, that this is unprecedented, and uh, some should stress this more... Uh, equivocally with regard to the U.S.-Israel joint patrol uh, being operational in the Red Sea, something we've not seen before. But, Mr. Owen, let's talk about regional alliance, uh, alliances that emerged out of this great power competition. Of course, uh, we can discuss the, the uh, initial step of China, uh, of course, after having multiple discussions with their Iranian counterparts, there is something big occurring here. Of course, we're talking about the 25-year the uh, contract of uh, about $400 billion uh, and uh, the meeting in Tajikistan between Wang Yi, 
the foreign minister and state uh, counselor of China with the foreign minister of Iran, Amir Hossein uh, Amir Abdullahian. How do you see this uh, emerging further? And uh, also uh, another note on this, a meeting that happened in the same place with Wang Yi, the foreign minister of uh, Russia, Sergei Lavrov, and the Pakistani foreign minister, as well as the deputy foreign minister of Iran in that specific meeting, uh, talking about Afghanistan, where the United States and NATO disengaged immediately those rivals enter into the picture. There is one word, one term we haven't uh, mentioned here, uh, and this is peace. And uh, one goes back uh, because of our conversation regarding China. Here, you mean peace in our time? Peace, uh, perhaps uh, in your time, because you're very young. Uh, peace by peace. <laughs> um, during uh, Prime Minister Rabin's visit uh, to China, um, exactly a month after the Oslo Accords uh, were signed, we are now marking the 28th anniversary of the, uh, the Oslo Accords, uh, what happened was, Right after the uh, White House ceremony, both Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin went their separate ways in order to market their different approaches to the very agreement they signed. And one of Rabin's uh, first uh, stops after um, uh, stopping in Morocco and other places was Beijing. This was the very first time an Israeli prime minister was received in, in China. And um, being there with Rabin, the Israeli journalists were invited by the Chinese foreign ministry for a lecture, not a conversation, not a give and take, but a lecture. And the lecture went like that. On the Arab-Israeli or Palestinian-Israeli problem, whatever you agree with the other side is fine with us. But there are three important issues on which we Chinese will never budge. Hong Kong, Tibet, and Taiwan. So be on notice. It doesn't matter who is in power in Beijing. We are not going to concede. And we saw it in Hong Kong uh, throughout the years. This was several years before, 97. And uh, on Tibet, they are not going uh, to give an inch. And Taiwan can be the next flashpoint. So fortunately enough, we are too far from the area, and we're not going to have to contribute forces. But Israel has trade with Taiwan, as it does with South Korea and in other places. And China has the Iranian card. Uh, China can decide whether uh, its position on the next JCPOA will be X or Y. It can provide Iran with missiles the way it did with Saudi Arabia when the Americans would not in the 1980s. The ballistic missile proliferation in the Persian Gulf started with the CSSM-2. Three. Three. Um, So um, China um, uh, does not have a Jewish lobby. Um, There are many, many Chinese, but almost none of them are Jews. And uh, they uh, have no leverage over the um, uh, Chinese equivalent of Congress. So it plays both ways. Israel cannot just ignore Chinese wishes. Ambassador Ayala? Well, except that with China, 
what works is really uh, hard-nosed real politics. And I think that this new alliance, the Quad, that the United States is leading is giving it some leverage vis-a-vis China, also on the JCPOA. So here the U.S. has something to give to China, so China will be more leaning towards the American position with the JCPOA, meaning more pressure on Iran to sign a new agreement, which either will go back to 2015 or a new agreement uh, altogether. I think in Taiwan there is a sigh of relief. After Afghanistan, China said, you know, very, very bluntly, that Taiwan should watch Afghanistan and and worry very much about it, which could have, in my mind, opened a new or a a, a world war had the Chinese invaded Taiwan. Now I think it's being kind of pushed back. And Israel also, from from the Afghanistan factor, also may benefit because, uh, as Amir Oren said, now it's the old foes which are coming back together to Afghanistan, whether it's China or uh, Russia, uh, Pakistan, and all those guys. And if they want this hot potato in their hands, they're welcome to it. But I think there is a great concern in the moderate Arab Sunni uh, regimes that a new kind of hotbed of radical Islam can spew out of there, which means they would lean more on Israeli technology, Israeli intelligence, Israeli cooperation. So in that respect, I think that the Abraham Accord have a very good um, prospects for longevity. Indeed. Dr. Lohman? Well, I think that in the case of Iran and its relations with, with China, whatever we should mention a third element, which is the accession to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the SCO, uh, which has a very limited number of members. And for Iran to join as a full member is a fairly significant step by the Chinese. But the reason they feel free to do so and sign huge economic frameworks, etc., is that for the time being, there's no cost to it. If there is, if they do realize that there is a high cost to um, entertaining Iranian illusions about uh, their uh, place in the world, um, they will re- they, they can easily rethink their position. We, it happened 11 years ago. At the request of the Obama administration, by the way, Israel um, uh, sent a mission to Beijing headed by uh, then Minister for Strategic Affairs, uh, Bogi Yalon. I was there um, for meetings with uh, the Chinese leadership, uh, basically with uh, one of the brightest persons I've ever come across, uh, Dai Bingguo who was the, the guiding light of, of Chinese foreign policy in his years. And we basically, what we said is, your choice is not between uh, pleasant business with Iran, as usual, and sanctions at the UN. Your choice is between sanctions in the, at the UN or war, because we are not going to let this happen. And lo and behold, it did have an impact. Within a week or so, the China Daily uh, was saying that they don't like countries which uh, make paper paper balls of UN resolutions. All of a sudden, the Chinese are on the side of the UN. You want to rise quietly, and um, and the, the second they fought the UN in in Korea, but by now they've switched sides. 
and uh, and they voted for UN Security Council Resolution 1929, which was the, san the, the severe sanction uh, regime imposed on Iran. So uh, the, the question is, what will they perceive to be the consequences of their actions when push comes to shove? And that depends very much on us. Let's bring Russia into the picture, Mr. Oren. Um, we know that there are no uh, permanent alliances, and we have seen it uh, with the uh, problems between France and the United States, which, by the way, uh, historically the French uh, had it coming because de Gaulle took France out of the military side of NATO when uh, uh, he thought that this was in France's interest uh, to have an independent uh, deterrent force and uh, to be uh, separated from the United States and Great Britain, but still under their auspices when the time comes. Uh, a very uh, egotistical foreign policy, but uh, of course uh, each country can choose uh, its own direction. And regarding Russia, um, the uh, biggest mystery is what is going to happen um, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, when uh, Vladimir Putin will be at the peak of his powers, uh, or perhaps someone else uh, uh, will rule uh, uh, Moscow. And Russia will have to choose sides between China and the United States, knowing full well that in either case, it will have to play second fiddle. It will not be a trilateral, tripolar world. It will be the United States versus China, with Russia not being neutralist, non-aligned, as there was the case in the 1950s when the non-aligned aligned themselves with the Soviet Union. And uh, the economic problems of Russia, uh, the demographic uh, problems, um, of course, it is losing population. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it will probably, because of its long border with China, it will probably side with the Americans. I totally agree. I totally no, agree. No, no, please disagree. Otherwise, I, no, we can't in this case, I totally agree because <laughs> for Russia, China is an existential threat in the long run, not only because the long border, because there is a, uh, a um, let's say, um, a, a very slow but permanent flow of Chinese, illegal immigrants of Chinese to, uh, to Russia. And um, China cannot rely on, I mean, Russia cannot rely on China. If they would like from chi the Chinese to help them economically, they know there's, a, there's going to be a very, very high, high price to that. So in a way for them, it's also almost a no-brainer to prefer the Americans. Now, I think the Americans would be well advised to start now a rapprochement with Putin and his government. And this would further uh, put China, let's say, in its place and would be for the benefit of uh, all of us, uh, certainly Israel vis-a-vis -vis Iran, where China can also be on uh, closer to, uh, to our position. And by, I would say, isolating China, see that the Chinese, they are very smart, uh, an ancient country and uh, culture, very, very uh, proud of itself, but they're very responsible and they're not aggressive. And they would be very, very, much calculating their way forwards 
And I think at the end of the day, that could really bring China to a much lower, um, let's say, conflict uh, situation with the West. Uh, I would put an emphasis on calculated, considering the fact that they do understand their capacity as a second-grade economy, if you will, and and not necessarily uh, capable uh, to outstretch uh, their influence. With that being said, and I'd like to hear your uh, point of this, Dr. Lerman, the interoperability between the Russian military and the Chinese military has never been as close as today. Uh, and some would say that it's even more close than the interoperability between North Korea and China, something that was out of the question several years ago. How do you see this then translate into uh, the the quite intriguing analysis of a, a potential rapprochement between Washington and Moscow. Well, I wish I could share um, Amir's uh, and, and, and Dani's optimism. Um, and, and the logic definitely points in, the, in that direction. I would I sometimes ask Russian friends, what do you want to be when you grow up? A Chinese province? a Chinese vassal state, Russia, at the end of the day, the Russian economy is four times the size of the economy of Israel. It is 4% of the economy, the aggregate economy of NATO. You can't be a world power anymore, even if you're very big and you have a huge pile of nuclear weapons. An economy, the economy is roughly equal to that of South Korea or Italy. You are there's a limit to what you you can take Syria, because Syria is half dead, you can take Syria, but there's not much else you can do. This is why Syria is so important to put it, because that's the one demonstration you can get. And of course, grab Crimea from the hapless Ukrainians. But the problem is that the the psychological and and, uh, ideological elements inbred for years about the hostility of the West, its rapacious intentions, and, and things that the West contributed to by overextending uh, NATO expansion, uh, the Georgian and, and Ukrainian misadventures, etc., are so deeply embedded uh, with the Russian uh, defense establishment and, and the uh, the, the the guys of the organization, so to speak, who, who run the country to, uh, for Putin, that it's not easy uh, to change course. Um, I remember a group of Israeli officers who came back from a visit in Russia, and they, they were given a presentation that started with two ravenous wolves with blood on their snouts. One of them was the European Union. The European Union. Uh, I mean, blood, snout, this is a, you know, a, a, a grass-eating animal. So the, the, the Russian obsessions have driven them in, in a direction which is ultimately, really, I agree, uh, against uh, Russia's deepest interest. The vision of Vancouver to Vladivostok, which Jim Baker played with in, uh, in the days after Soviet collapse, seems as far from reality as ever. Well, at least Red Riding Hood was red. (laughs) (laughs) Let's bring Israel into the picture on uh, the the regional scale right now within the implications of this great power competition, Mr. Oman. 
We have uh, discussed here problems uh, through the prism of nation states, uh, which is uh, a simplistic way, uh, perhaps unavoidable, uh, to do it. But there are also questions of regime and population. China and Russia are ruled by one party and one leader. This could change, but they, uh, it is more probable that democracies will change towards that model. Uh, we may see a Trump coming back in 2024. We don't know what will happen in Israel if uh, there is some disgust with democracy. And um, all of our discussion here um, must be based on the reality that there could be several rulers who will try to divide the world and the region. In the region, you have Erdogan, you have Sisi, you have monarchies, um, such as the Jordanian one, if it survives. It is easier for them to decide on foreign policy and national security and alliances than it is for Israel. So um, your question mark cannot right now uh, become an exclamation mark. Um, it depends on developments far into the future. Ambassador Ayalon? Well, there was one element that Amir did not mention in his uh, very thoughtful description of the region, which is the Palestinians. And in my mind, they are the big losers again. You know, there is this uh, adage that uh, if uh, you don't board the station, the, 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 the train, train, which stops at your station, you lose it forever. And the Palestinians have done it all the time, back in 37, 47, all the way to 2000. But in the Middle East, sometimes the train is stuck and the station leaves. <laughs> <laughs> right. In any case, if we have seen in the last, uh, let's say, um, 10 years uh, since the, um, let's say, the breakup of the Arab world, how the Palestinian issue is coming down in priorities, first and foremost for the Arab countries, but then also for the international community, now it's going to be pushed further down, and that could lead to two um, scenarios. Either we will see more aggression and more violence as they want to come back to the table, on the international table, and for that Israel has to brace, not only in Gaza, but also in the West Bank, or, which is, you know, hope against hope, we will see some more realism, uh, certainly not under um, Abbas, but if we will see a, a peaceful transformation, which also I very much doubt, in Ramallah, then maybe there could be rethinking over there and more practicality towards a not necessarily a full peace, but some kind of interim solutions. Dr. Lelman, last week there was a uh, the international uh, uh, conference or uh, the conference of the Institute for for uh, Counterterrorism at the Leichmann University, right. during which uh, the strategic uh, directorate uh, commander, uh, Major General Tal Kelman, spoke about competition between Israel and Iran on a regional scale. Do you see this uh, evolve as part of that great power competition, or is it something more uh, specific to regional affairs? Well, it very much depends on whether the Chinese will cross the barrier into direct help for the Iranians. They are too cautious. It's too early in the stage of their rise, and it's for them uh, perhaps 
not something that they can really uh, uh, risk mat trying to match Israel or, in some situations, the U.S. firepower. So uh, it is really still a regional matter. But what it does create is a commonality of interest between Israel, the key Arab players in the Gulf, including Saudi Arabia, although uh, this is a more covert relationship, and what we saw recently in uh, Sharm el-Sheikh, uh, the amity between uh, Prime Minister Bennett and President Sisi, which is part also of the Eastern Mediterranean pattern, which uh, is by now acquiring strategic dimensions. By the way, the, the French may be very miffed by the Australian business, but they have come in in the Eastern Mediterranean as a significant player, and we are partners in this matter. So Israel's position now is as a legitimate key member of an alignment, I don't use the term alliance, which is a, has formal connotation, but alignment of forces that faces both Iran and the ambitions of Erdogan's Turkey in the region and think that puts us in a very significant position. And we'll have to discuss this uh, in our next uh, edition, but I'd like to thank Mr. Oren, Dr. Lerman, Ambassador Ayalon for being part of today's panel, and I'd like to thank our viewers as well, and we will see you next time. Thank you for joining us in another Jerusalem Studio podcast. For more content on Israel and its region, we invite you to visit our website at tv7israelnews.com and follow us on social media.